0: Would you stand as we read God's word? When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you do, shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the shout, sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him, and they captured the city. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. The word of the Lord.
1: We're four weeks into our Advent series, and we're considering different theophanies that occur in the Old Testament. And so by way of just reminder, you know, what exactly is a theophany? A theophany is a moment in time where God physically manifests his presence to his people before the coming of Christ in the Gospels. And each of these theophanies uh, in the Old Testament is a moment where we, we learn more and more of the nature and the character of God. And over time, as you string these theophanies together, we understand more, but they lead up to the arrival of the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So one way you might think about the way this unfolds is uh, to think about a, a blockbuster movie. You know, so the Avengers comes out over the summer, and then what happens? The studio releases three and four different trailers, different versions of uh, the previews, so that you kind of get a little bit different angle of the story and what the movie is about and what will happen. But you don't really understand that full story until the movie comes out. Those trailers don't really make sense until the full story is revealed. And so in these theophanies, you get a a mini-advent, if you will, a mini-arrival of God in time and in space. And so the point of looking at these is that we could step back and, and think, What did it mean for God to arrive in their time, in their circumstances? And what does it tell us about who Jesus is when he arrives? But also, we're waiting on him to return. What does these theophanies tell us about how we should wait for his second coming? There's a line in a Christmas song that always reminds me uh, of the silliness of uh, the Christmas season in our culture. You know where we all know the story of Jesus and the reason for Christmas can be hijacked for all sorts of purposes uh, and 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 plans. So you know the song well, and here's the last line. I won't sing it, but it is. uh, So say your prayers and thank the Lord above, because Santa Claus comes tonight. So boys and girls, be good. You know, say your prayers get right with God and give him thanks because Santa is coming, a creep that watches you sleep, <laughs> eats your cookies, but he's gonna bring you a lot of gifts, so those things are okay. You know, our culture is just this hybrid, one part manger, one part materialism, and we call it Christmas. How's this story of a baby born into utter poverty? To a virgin with nothing in a stable, in a manger, get turned into a culture where you can get shot or assaulted waiting in line at a Black Friday holiday sale. It's crazy what we've turned this story into. But we know that, don't we? We talk about it every holiday season. But I bring it up because, you know, we do see this during the holidays. But the holidays are just a concentrated version of how our culture lives throughout the rest of the year, underlined by this belief. You can have Jesus and the exact life that you want at the same time. There's no conflict between the two. All Jesus wants is for you to be a good person, give him lip service, give him compliments, make him feel good about himself, and then once your duty's done, you can pursue whatever life that you like. That's not worship. That's not Christianity. Our passage this morning would urge us to consider a different story and to be challenged by the fact that Jesus wants us to recognize the agendas that we have for him, the ways that we try to mix them in to the life that we want. And we all have an agenda. Everybody does. We all have a vision of the life that we want for ourselves And we kind of envision how Jesus can fit into that equation. But if we want to be a faithful disciple, then we have to remember that, you know, the one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, might have a completely different vision for your life than you do. So what do we do with these things? Well, my goal for us this morning is that by the end of it, you might have a better idea of what your agenda might be. And to know what Christ actually invites you into. And we're in Joshua 5, and in case you are unfamiliar with uh, the setting of where we're up to in this story, is uh, essentially Joshua 5 is uh, a time, it's about 40 years uh, after the Exodus, 40 years after Israel had crossed the Red Sea and all the events of the plagues, and Israel is rescued from the house of Pharaoh. But it's 40 years after, and Moses has died. And now Joshua has taken over the leadership uh, of the Israelites as his successor. So they've just crossed the Jordan River. They've now come into the promised land that God said would be theirs. But they arrive in the promised land with a purpose. And it's a big one. Because they are supposed to go up and wage war against the inhabitants of the promised land. They're supposed to go in, pick a fight, and take it. And up first... Just on the edge of the Jordan River is the stronghold, the fortress with its mighty walls, is Jericho. Now, to give us a sense of, you know, what they're up against, God told them what this would look like in Deuteronomy 9, years before. God says to them that when they go in to uh, take the land, the promised land, they're going to go up against nations that are greater than they are, mightier than they are, against people that are bigger and taller than they are that live in cities that are fortified to the heavens. And they will live in tents as nomads. So here they are in this passage. They finally cross the Jordan. They are now in the promised land, and they're on the verge of war. So the stage is set. You can imagine it's a tense time in the life of Israel. The rumors of war, preparation for war, the war machine getting ratcheted up, in the the Israelite people, would have been uh, a lot of anxiety, just like it is in ours, and we have moments and rumors of war. What will happen? Will we be able to get through it? What should we expect? So in light of all of that, the stage is set. It might help us to understand Joshua's posture towards this man that he encounters. Verse 13 says that he's by Jericho, most likely meaning that he's out by the city. He's not just taking a walk, but he's, he's doing recon here. He's looking at it. He's seeing what he's up against. He's making a plan. And he's most likely by himself as he's getting ready to attack this city. But then he looks up and he sees a man with a drawn sword. And the language that it uses is expressing that he's not starting a friendly conversation as you would with the man with the drawn sword. You know, hello, friend. He's not doing that. He's essentially drawing a line in the sand when he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? He probably drew his sword, ready to go. He says, are you for us or for our enemies? He throws down the gauntlet. But the man responds and draws a bigger line in the sand. He says, no, I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord, and I have come. What a magnificent response. It's one of my favorite in the scriptures. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? No. No. I reject the premise of your question. It's too flat and it's way too simple. Who I am is not defined by human interests, it's not about where I fit into your equations, it's do you fit in mine. My allegiance is to no man. No, I am the commander of the armies of the Lord. And I have come. And Joshua immediately falls on his face and he worships as he sees who's in front of him. Now, who is this mighty commander? Well, you know, I I read it as none other than Jesus, in a pre-incarnate form. One, the name, the commander of the armies of the heavens. He is the one who rides on the clouds of the heavens. He is the heavenly champion. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of hosts. But we also get it from the events that happen in the passage. And one of them that helps us understand who it is is that when Joshua falls down to worship him, the commander doesn't stop him. He allows it to happen. Elsewhere in the scriptures, if it's an angel that is the messenger and the person who receives that message bows down to worship them, the angel stops it. So Michael and Daniel. Think of the book of Revelation where uh, John bows down before the, the angel to worship and the, the angel actually gives an almost annoyed response and says, don't worship me. I'm a servant. I'm a servant just like you are. But secondly, in verse 15, he tells Joshua to take off his sandals because he is on holy ground. And angels do not make the ground holy. Only the presence of God can do that. So here he is, perhaps before Jesus. And it's a, uh, It's a a passage that just makes my imagination run wild. And a fascinating picture of Joshua getting ready to go to war and he comes face to face with this commander of the armies of the Lord. And yet perhaps outside of his ability to perceive and beyond his senses, he's surrounded by the armies of heaven that the commander of the armies of the Lord has brought with him, waiting to do his bidding on behalf of God's people. It's a fascinating picture. So what are we to do with it? What does it mean for us? And how does this actually challenge our agendas? Well, in Joshua's response to this commander, we see two things. And these two things constitute what true worship actually looks like. And true worship will always challenge your agenda and what you think is best and what you think you need. And in light of who this commander is, the first thing we see Joshua do is he falls on his face. He hits the dust, and he worships. And that can seem simple, but we need to see the importance of that response, because that response is no small thing. Uh, it was Greek th- uh, summer uh, a number of years ago, and I was in Greek 3, and I started reading uh, the Harry Potter series, which is a terrible time to start reading uh, the Harry Potter series, because I just blew through, just read one book after the other. And I remember where I was when I came across my favorite scene in the entire uh, series. It's in book five at the very end. They're in the Ministry of Magic. The Death Eaters, the bad guys, the the people that follow Voldemort, the Dark Lord, are going up against the Order of the Phoenix, the people that are sworn to protect Harry from Voldemort. And they're in the Ministry of Magic in this massive auditorium, and they're just going back and forth, you know, blow for blow, in this fight, and it's essentially a stalemate. But then all of a sudden, they see that all the Death Eaters start running. They just hit the eject button, and they leave. They start running, and they're confused. They don't know why, until they turn and they look, and they see Dumbledore. He just walked into the room. All it took was for them to see him just enter the room and they run because he is more powerful than all of them put together. Now, how silly would that story have read if as soon as Dumbledore arrives, they start saying, hey, Dumbledore, great. How about you go do this? Go do that. How silly would it have been for them to start to impose their agenda on that kind of power? So do you see the importance of Joshua's response? Because how silly would it have been for him to understand and recognize who it was that stood before him and then say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Here's what I'm thinking for Jericho. Here's the plan I have. Let's do this. Now, in the face of that kind of power, the only reasonable posture is to go face down, is to kneel, is to hit the dust. And that is the first component of true worship is recognizing who it is that's actually standing in front of you. Who has actually entered into your life? Which one of you is God? Which one of you is the most important? It's recognizing his presence, his weight, and his value. And that seems really simple on paper, right? But is it really all that easy? Whenever your life goes, gets to a certain point where you know, you feel the weight of life and you know, difficult circumstances, what's the first thing that you do? Is it just to immediately fall in worship? No, most likely it's not. It's because it's not a small thing to remember who has entered into your life. Or this morning as we worshiped, where was your mind? Did you understand who was standing before you today? As you were singing the songs, but your mind was elsewhere? When was the last time we just stopped and remembered that we are of the people that have actually heard and know the name of Jesus? Because there's hundreds of millions of people in this world that haven't heard that name yet. To know that the Lord of glory has stepped into your life and chosen you and given your life profound significance. We forget who it is that stands before us. And it's no small thing to do that. There's also more to Joshua's response that we need to consider. He recognizes who's standing before him. He falls on his face in worship. But then he asks a question. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? What would you have me do, my Lord? And again, consider the situation that Joshua's in. I think we often strip the human element from some of these stories, maybe because we know them so well. But consider Joshua's situation. He now bears the weight of leading this entire generation of Israelites who are not an easy people to lead. And he's encamped outside the walls of his enemies at Jericho, and he's preparing this nation to go to war. I bet there was a lot on his mind in those days. I bet he lost sleep. I bet he was constantly doubting whether he'd made the right decisions, worrying if he was doing the right thing, considering whether or not feeling maybe like he wasn't going to be able to be up for the job, if he was actually doing any good. I imagine there was a lot on his mind and a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry under circumstances like that. He is human by all means. And certainly the foremost thing on his mind at the, you know, at least the time of this passage is Jericho. He is after all out wandering around and seeing or in surveying the city. But here in this moment, when he comes confronted before his Lord, he stops and he asks the question of faith, my Lord, what would you have me do? It's an agenda-tossing question. What do you have planned? What would you ask of me? What do you want me to do in this moment and in this situation? And again, it seems simple on paper, but that is no small thing. To lay aside our plans and our agendas in hard and difficult circumstances and say, Lord, what would you have me do is not a simple thing. When you feel the weight of life, is that your first impulse? Or is it to try and think ahead, try and think of how to solve the problem, trying to think of resources to get through this situation, to stop and say, Lord, what would you have me do is challenging. And yet that is the second component of true worship. And that really challenges us, I think, to even deepen our understanding of ways that we define what worship actually is. Because yes, Joshua bows and he recognizes who is before him. He yields. But if that's all that we think worship is, it's just this basic recognition that God is God and we are not, then your understanding of worship is far too short, falls far too short, because it doesn't make a lot of sense to come in and give assent to, yes, God is sovereign, name above all names, he is, uh, he is Lord, Master, King, Savior, God of all creation, worthy of all honor, all glory, all praise, and my life, and then we leave as though and live in a way as though that profession has no bearing on how we live. If we say that's true, then the most unreasonable thing is to then go and not live in a way where we ask, What would you have me do? What do you ask of me? What is my Lord's desire? Because it's not true worship if we confess while at the same time being unwilling to let go of our agendas. And really, quite frankly, without the question, Lord, what would you have me do? Our worship is trivial because our life shows that we don't actually buy what we're selling. And I think if we're honest, you know, as we consider that question, Lord, what would you have me do? It's a scary question to ask, you know. Especially, it's really, in a lot of ways, it's why we don't ask it sometimes. Because we're afraid of what the answer might be. We're afraid of ways that we'll will be, will be challenged in ways that we don't want to be challenged. I'll have to give up something I don't want to give up. I'll have to take on a burden that I don't feel like I can bear, and so it's easier to not ask the question at all and to claim ignorance. And yet, this is where faith begins. This is where worship begins. And it's how we begin to participate in God's purposes and plans. And so, recognizing who God is is not the end all, be all of worship. That's where true worship begins and moves us to a place where we would bow the knee to our Lord and ask what he would require of us. And so what would it look like in your life if you began to ask that question in earnest in the coming year in 2019? That became your prayer. Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? What agendas do you have that would be exposed? What agendas do you have that you know would be challenged? It's important for us to identify what those things are because they represent a part of our life where true worship does not exist. And so, there's all sorts of agendas that exist. One for every person in the room. Multiple for every person in the room. It's normal. Everybody has them, so how do we understand what they look like? Well, take someone that says, um, you know, I don't read my Bible because I I feel like I don't always understand it. And so, uh, I find it confusing, and so I'll just, you know, end up with more questions, and so I just kind of don't. So what's the agenda? Well, I don't want a faith that requires me to work and to search and meditate on the mysteries of God. I don't want a faith that asks me to swim in the deep end. I just want it to come easy, and I want it to be simple. And I don't want to come across something that, you know, convicts me and challenges me to change. You know, if you think about it, it's it's really not the work, though, is it? Because if it was just the, the difficulty in the work of having to learn and search, we don't have a problem doing that whenever we have to find and learn about a new diet that our child might need. Or you know, doing the research to know what's the best starting lineup for your fantasy team this week. We put the work in there, don't we? Not that I have ever would know what that is like, but you know, we were talking this week, uh, Ryan and I, and he put it pretty simply and summed it up quite nicely. If you want to avoid Jesus then just don't read the bible. Secondly, take someone who says I struggle to pray regularly. You know, because I don't uh, you know, I don't feel anything. I don't feel like it does any good. I just hear silence. And I feel like it's pointless. So what's the agenda there? What's well, I want a god that treats me, you know, in essentially the same way that the people at Netflix do. Always trying to offer me something new and exciting to keep my attention. It's got to be entertaining if I'm going to invest in it and give it the time of day. You know, I've even heard, you know, people say, I, I don't want to go to India because I'm afraid that, you know, once I met those kids and saw those pastors and, and, saw the, and met those women, I'm afraid that I'd actually start to care. You know, I'm afraid that my heart would break and they don't want to live with a burden. You know, or the fear of having to wrestle with the harder questions of life, of how, you know, could a good God allow that to happen to that kid? How can that kind of suffering, how could he allow that to befall that house? And, you know, to wonder why he intervenes in one life and not the next. But the shallow one is a pretty boring place to live. We have all sorts of agendas. You know, I want to make sure I'm comfortable financially before I give unto the Lord. I want to make sure I know exactly who's in my cultivate group before I'm willing to commit. Or I want to know that community group today is going to be worth it because I'm really tired. Or I don't want to walk in forgiveness because I don't want to give up control. We have a long list, and the list goes on, because we all have agendas, but they could all be summarized as this. We want to know the return, on, the return we're going to get before we are willing to invest But that's not Christianity. That's a negotiation. And to the negotiator, Jesus says, no, I am the commander of the armies of the Lord, and I have come. And he invites you into a better story. But the cost of participation is that you would be willing to recognize his presence in your life and who it is that stands before you day in and day out and begin to ask that question, Lord, what would you have me do? What do you say to your servant? Because without those two things, we have to seriously ask ourselves Am I really participating in what Jesus is doing if I never ask him what he wants me to do? Am I really contributing to his story? Who am I really following? But if you are willing to do those things, if you committed in 2019 to say, I want to recognize your presence every day that you have come into my life and ask you that question of what you require. And you can trust that you are participating in the story that Jesus is telling. And you won't always know how, but what you are a part of is far bigger than you could really possibly know. Because the way this story works is that he will use you in ways that are far beyond your wildest understanding. And that is exactly what we see with Joshua and Rahab. If you go back in Joshua 2, just two chapters, Joshua sent spies into Jericho. And they had to hide out. They would have been killed. They were found. Rahab, the prostitute, hid them in her home. And her response to them is is really incredible. She says, For I know the Lord your God has given you this land because we have heard of all that he has done. And all of our hearts melted when we heard what he did to the Egyptians. He is the God of the heavens above and the earth below. Please swear to me that you will deal kindly with me because I have dealt kindly with you. And what do we see from Rahab? We see true worship. We see the same thing that we saw with Joshua. She recognized this God that had come into her life that she now encountered and the God that now stood before her. And she got on his agenda at great cost to herself. And when the city was destroyed, Joshua remembered the two spies and their vow to her. And he made sure to save her. In her house, and it's really quite beautiful if you read it because it lists all of the the wealth and the treasure and the, the precious metals that Israel took out of Jericho and took back to their camp. But at the end of that list of the treasures that they received that were precious unto the Lord was Rahab because she was precious unto the Lord in ways that she would never even know in her lifetime because both Joshua and Rahab were faithful they participated in God's plans, but they participated in a story that was so much bigger than they, would have, than they would even have an understanding of. They didn't have a clue as to how God was actually really using them. But we know, because if you go into the Gospel of Matthew, it says that Rahab would marry a man named Salmon, and she would give birth to a man named Boaz, and Boaz would give birth to a man named Obed. Obed would give birth to a man named Jesse. Jesse would give birth to a man named King David. All the way down to Jesus. How's that for participating in something that you have no idea as to how God is actually using you? Rahab, the prostitute, had no idea that from her, God would bring kings and the king of kings. And and Joshua would have had no idea that who he was actually saving the great 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 grandmother of his Messiah. And on top of that, that commander that he encountered would one day take off his armor, become a baby, and be born through her line. And he would destroy the curse on this world forever through her and through him. It's a really fascinating story. But but the story that God is telling always is. And he'd like to tell that through you in your life. But you've got to be willing to recognize who it is that stands in front of you. And you have to be willing to ask, what would you have me do? And if you ask that, then you will always be used in ways that are far beyond your understanding or your scope. Because that's just the way the story works. But if you're the type of person that says, I have to know the outcomes before I'm willing to invest. And I'm sorry. But you're probably not that interested in Christianity. But The invitation is always there, and it's why we have Advent, because Advent makes all other agendas secondary, that this is what God is doing in the world, and it's the only agenda that will last, and invites us to draw near, to come to him and say, my Savior, you have finally come. What would you have me do? Do you know who stands before you today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, one of these days every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. We look forward to that day and we look forward to you being exalted and lifted up above all things, that every every eye that has ever existed will see you as the one who is the creator and the very purpose of all creation and the very purpose of our lives. We struggle to recognize that you have entered into our lives and to remember that. We recognize that we, we treat you as a personal assistant sometimes, or we treat you like Santa Claus. We ask that you would forgive us. And we ask that you would help us to understand you and your power and your might and in what you have called us to do. And we need your grace to have the courage to constantly ask what you would have us do because we know that at times you will ask us to do things that feel impossible and feel strange and feel pointless, like walking around a city seven times and expecting that to make the walls fall down. But we trust that you will use us for your purposes and for your plans. And we ask that that would be the story and the legacy of Rockwall Press that we contributed to the story that you were telling. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.